This morning, if you would uh, be making your way to the book of Mark chapter 9. This morning, we're going to be in Mark chapter 9. And I'm going to read in our hearing um, just a, a few verses. We're going to be reading in verse 42 through verse 50. This is the section that we began looking at last week. And just to sort of give us a little bit of context as we get into this, Jesus, of course, he has been dealing with the disciples concerning their sin. Um, Their sin has been exposed. And this moment here where Jesus is in this home with the disciples, he is dealing with them concerning their sin. He exposes their sin He lays it out front, and essentially what he is doing is he is calling them to repentance. They need to repent. They need to be dealing with their sin. They must be dealing with their sin. And really, this is the the whole emphasis of this section. And then we saw last week that Jesus, in verses 42 through 48, he he preaches or he, he teaches this lesson on hell. And so some might find that confusing, being that the disciples, um, they are following him. And so some might find that troubling, the fact that Jesus would speak of heaven and hell to these men who are following him. But as we saw last week, Jesus does this with great reason. Jesus is dealing with the disciples. He wants them to examine themselves. He does not want them dealing with their sins lightly. And essentially, we can boil it down to this. Jesus wants to instill in the disciples a fear of God. To fear God is to depart from wickedness. And so Jesus, he wants to instill that in them. He wants them to feel the weight of that. He wants them to see the the ugliness of sin and the consequences of sin. And this then should induce them, encourage them to repent of their sin. So let me read beginning in verse 42 and we're going to read through verse 50 and we'll work our way through this text. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. Of course, Jesus there is referring to sin and the accompanying lusts. He says, cut it off, for it is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell into the unquenchable fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. 
Salt is good. But if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This morning, we're going to be focusing our attention on verses 49 through 50. And uh, um, many of the commentators that I've read, they've said this is probably one of one of the most difficult passages to to interpret um, in all of Scripture. And and so uh, if you would pray for me. And for us, that we would make it through this, this hour unscathed as we try to work our way through this text. But I believe that there are strong um, uh, implications for us as believers. And what Jesus is getting at here in this text is very, very critical. <clears throat> in light of everything that we've seen in this text so far with Jesus dealing with the disciples, I think one of the things that we can if we want to sort of frame in our minds as we go through this, um, through these set of verses, 49 and 50, if we want to sort of um, have somewhere to shelf that in our thinking, we can think this way. Jesus is warning the disciples of a religion and Christianity that is worthless and insipid. Jesus is going to warn the disciples of a religion and Christianity that is worthless and insipid. And so, Jesus, as we said, this whole section, this whole discourse, you you cannot disconnect what he says in verses 49 and 50 from what he has said. It would be a very difficult thing if Jesus taught a whole discourse on a particular matter, and then at the end for him to just jump off and talk about something else that has nothing to do with what he just said. So so clearly, whatever Jesus says here in verses 49 through 50, it has direct implication to what he has been saying all throughout. And so it seems to me in this text that in order to induce the disciples to genuine and radical repentance, Jesus sets forth two compelling appeals to them. He's going to set forth two compelling appeals to them. First, Jesus instructs the disciples with a compelling metaphor. Jesus instructs the disciples with a compelling metaphor. This is found in verses 49 through verses 50c. you notice it says there, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Now, as we work our way through this, through this text, and we're just going to work through it line upon line and just think through it methodically as we go through, there are some very difficult questions that have to be answered. One of which, and the first question that we'll try to answer is, what does it mean to be salted with fire? Jesus says, for everyone will be salted with fire. So what does it mean? What what does it mean to be salted with fire? What does it mean to salt 
something. Well, when we think about salt, in, in our minds, initially, we think about cooking. We, we automatically think in terms of uh, food needing flavor, and so we, we add a little salt to it, and, and therefore, we add flavor to our food. However, in Jesus's day, due to the fact that there were no means of refrigeration, there was no such thing as dry ice or um, things of that nature, salt was recognized primarily as a preservative. And as a preservative, salt also had the effect of purifying something. For example, meat. So you would use salt. There was no, you couldn't just come home and with a steak and throw it in the freezer like we do. You would have to salt it and, and care for it. And that way um, it, it, um, it would be preserved and it would remain pure and be purified. And so salt was a very, very precious commodity in Jesus's day. So during Jesus's time, The concept of salting something primarily meant the idea of preserving. It didn't primarily mean flavoring food, but it was the idea of preserving something and purifying it. It's interesting, though, that the element that is being used in this process, in Jesus's metaphor here, is not salt. We would say you would salt it with salt. That that would be the idea there. However, Jesus says here that everyone will be salted, not with salt, but with fire. Fire. Now, this is this is where this text gets tricky, because because now the following question obviously is, well, who is everyone referring to? Who is going to be salted with fire? Now, there are three options as you as you work through this text, as we've gone through it, especially verses 48, I mean, 42 through 48. There are three options that you can go with. One, it could be those in the kingdom, those who enter life. Secondly, it could be those in Gehenna, right, in hell that Jesus just referred to in verses 48. Thirdly, it could be referring to the disciples. These are the three options that that we have in the text that are given to us. Well, the first option, we can toss that out because when in heaven, when we enter life, when we enter finally the, the kingdom of God, believers are completely purified completely preserved. This is our glorification. So, so we, don't, we don't go and enter into life in order that we might continually be purified. No, that, that, that's not how that works. As a matter of fact, the text says that we will uh, see him or we'll be made just like him because we will see him just as he is. We will be perfectly and completely glorified in that moment. The second option, based on the context, uh, Jesus can be referring to everyone who is cast into Gehenna. This statement then would be um, uh, a concluding one on the previous discourse where Jesus is speaking about heaven and hell, and particularly in verse 48, where their worm does not die and the fire is not 
quenched. And so there you have fire in verse 48, and then you have fire again in verse 49. And the strength of this argument is the fact that it rests on the opening conjunction, for. So it is, it is in a sense, directly tied to what we have in verse 48. And so you, you can't just break that up. The, the, this conjunction, sometimes it connotes reason, connotes basis or explanation um, of a statement that is previously made. So grammatically, logically, and syntactically, it is connected to the previous discourse. So um, if we were to take it that way, then being salted, Jesus says everyone will be salted. So then being salted then would be another way of describing the condition and state of all those who are cast in Gehenna. They are salted with fire. Now, the difficulty with this option is twofold. The difficulty here is that we would have to conclude that Jesus is using the verb salted in a way that is foreign to its meaning in his context. Again, when uh, the word salted is being used, the connotation is the idea of, of preserving and then which also has the connotation of purifying. So we would have to say that Jesus is not using that verb in that way, but he is using it simply as a description for everyone who is in Gehenna and they are being salted with fire. So that, that, that would be the first difficulty. And so it would, it would rest on this verb. How are you taking this verb? How do you believe Jesus is using this verb? And to take it that way, you would, you would be moving it out of its element, so to say. The second difficulty is really the greatest one. Um, because if you hold to the fact that Jesus, he is using the word, um, salted in its first century meaning, in other words, as a means of preserving and purifying, then you would be concluding then that the fires of Gehenna are meant to preserve and purify those who are in it. That, that, that's, a, that's a great issue. This would have some sort of a, a purgatorial view of hell to it. Uh, that somehow you go to hell in order that you might be uh, purified to a point where you can leave and then you can enter into God's kingdom. No, this is not biblical. Hell, or Gehenna, biblically, is the lake of fire. It is the place of judgment for Satan and all those who do not know God and all those who reject the gospel. According to the scriptures, Gehenna, or hell, is a place of eternal destruction. We read this a fearful description of hell in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. It says there, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented, not purified, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That is what Gehenna is. It is a place of torment. It is not a place of preservation. It is not a place of purification. You do not go there to have your sin and evil purged out so that you can somehow then be made fit for heaven. The only means by which our sin is dealt with is through the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. 
And so that cannot be what we're dealing with here. So now this leaves us with another option, which to me, um, as I've studied this um, more and have been wrestling with it for, for weeks now, it seems to me that it makes more sense that Jesus is using, first of all, the verb in the way that it is commonly used. It is being used as salting something, which would connote the idea of preserving and then by virtue of that, purifying. I believe Jesus is using it in that way. And so, I believe here that the last option, so it can't be believers in heaven who enter life because we are finally glorified there, nothing else to be done. It can't be those who are in Gehenna because Gehenna is a place of judgment and torment of eternal destruction. So this leaves us with the disciples. Seems to be that Jesus is referring to the, to the disciples. The disciples, except for Judas, I believe here, represent all followers of Christ. So the implication then is that the disciples will undergo, during their lifetime, a process of preservation and purification. The disciples will undergo a process during their lifetime of preservation and purification. Now, what are the strengths of this argument? Well, first of all, as I said, the use of the verb salted. This is what really made me um, go this route is because I, I felt to, to make salt or the, that verb salted, to, to make it mean something that it didn't mean in that period, um, didn't fit well with me. So I, I find it best to, to stick with the idea that salted has the idea of preserving and purifying. So that's the first strength. The second strength is that the word everyone there, the word everyone there can be translated as each. That, that, that's a viable translation, each. So implying immediacy, in, in this context at least, and, and referencing the disciples. So in other words, for each of you, that is, i.e. disciples, will be salted with fire. So, pile on another question, which leads then to this question, what does fire refer to? What does fire refer to? If, if Jesus here is, is using that in the, if he's using the verb salted in the way that it's used to, sancti- to, to, to purify and to preserve, and he says here that the disciples will be salted with fire, now the question is, well, what is this fire? Because it is the means by which it is the thing that they're going to be salted with. Well, there are two options here. First of all, this can be referring to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit working through the Word, referring to the sanctifying work which the Holy Spirit orchestrates in the life of the believer throughout his or her life. The Holy Spirit's sanctifying and preserving work. The second option, which I think is probably more um, immediate to what Jesus is saying here, the second option is the believer's sufferings and trials throughout their lifetime. 
the believer's suffering and trials throughout their lifetime. Now, I take it to be really a combination of, of, of both there, because you, you can't dismiss either one, um, but I think it, it, it has primarily to do with the second one, in, in that it is the believer's suffering and the believer's trials through their lifetime. Now, just for a couple of passages just to think through here, because it's interesting that Peter here, he was there present, obviously, but you'll notice that, that Peter, when dealing with our trials, notice how, G, notice how he refers to them. For example, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, he says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, that is, while you are living, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that, why are you being distressed by these various trials? It is so that the proof of, of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, even though tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter Dealing with our trials and thinking through our trials, he refers to them as fire. Notice also 1 Peter chapter 4. Peter loves this imagery of fire, but in 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12, notice what it says there. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal. These believers, they, they, they were being salted in a sense. Don't, don't be surprised that you're being salted with these, with these fiery ordeals among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. It's not strange. As a matter of fact, if we're taking Jesus' words, no, he says you will be salted with Fire. So nothing strange is happening to you. You don't need to be surprised. Nothing is taking. Nothing is happening that that should not happening. Uh, that should not be happening. If you are a disciple of Christ, you will be salted with fire. So don't think of it in some way that this is foreign. This is something that should not be happening to me. No, it is for your testing. But to the degree thirteen. That you share the sufferings of Christ. It's interesting, Jesus, he's telling them about the cross and he explained to them in chapter 8, you also, if you're going to follow me, you will have to follow in the path that I'm going. It is a path of suffering and of humility. If you're going to be my disciple, you must too take the road of the cross. So Peter here seems he's Speaking of this same thing, but to the degree that you suffer or you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer but a, or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but he is to glorify God in this name. 
It's interesting here that Peter, in verse 17, he refers to judgment. He says, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? You know, know, that is an amazing thought that Peter is bringing out here. For the believer, our suffering is here and now. And God, he is, he is, he is in a sense bringing judgment, not to our condemnation, but, but, but we are undergoing suffering. We are undergoing trials in order that he might prove our faith and mature our faith. And our suffering is in this present time. But for the believer, I mean, but, but, but for the unbeliever, if this is what we're going through in this life, the suffering that we're going in, in this life, what's going to be the outcome for those who do not know God, who do not obey the gospel, who reject Christ. It seems here that Jesus, based on the context here, that he is referring to the suffering of the believer. We're all going to be salted. We're going to be salted with fire. Everyone who decides to follow Jesus Christ will suffer persecution. And whatever we face in this life, what a blessing it is that it is in order that we might be preserved. It is in order that we might be purified. Purified. Our suffering will be for our purification. The suffering of unbelievers will be for their destruction their destruction. So, notice Jesus continues this metaphor, this compelling metaphor here. He continues in verse 50. Says there, salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, With what will you make it salty again? With what will you make it salty again? Now, another question we have to ask is, what is the connection between verses 49 and verse 50? What is the connection between 49 and verse 50? It's interesting that verse 50 doesn't have any grammatical connectors to it. It doesn't have a conjunction there. Um... So we don't know what the connection is per se. So what this indicates to us is that the the, the connection between verses 49 and 50 is one that is logical. It is a logical one. It It is one that the reader must find within the text. And really the only logical connection that we find between verses 49 and 50 is between the words salt and salted. Salt and salted. And so really, the, the, the connection here is a conceptual connection. It's conceptual, the concept. As we saw in verse 50, the verb salted is a reference to the trials and suffering that believers undergo in their lifetime according to the will of God, as Peter said, for the testing of their faith, for their sanctification, for their preservation. However, here in verse 50, it seems that Jesus is using the word salt in a different way. 
So while Jesus is using the same concept of salt, he is using it differently. And, and it's my conviction, and some may not agree with this, but it seems to me that Jesus is using some sort of a play on words. Salted and then salt. And he's using this play on words in order to, um, probably as a teaching mechanism, in order to, to cause what he is saying right now to, to stick in their minds. So in other words, um, you will be salted. Salt is good. So that, that concept sticking in the mind. So I would take this, and as I worked through it, it seems to me that in verse 49, Jesus is referring, we might say, to external salt. External salt. That is, the external trials and fiery ordeals that believers will encounter in this life in order to test and prove and purify their faith. However, in verse 50, Jesus is referring to what we might call internal salt. Internal salt. Notice the latter part of verse 50. Jesus commands them to have this kind of salt in themselves. Have it in yourselves. Have salt in yourselves. And I don't believe Jesus is saying have, have, have suffering in yourself. I believe Jesus here, he's referring to something else. Here in verse 50, I believe that salt is being used with reference to Christian virtue and character. Christian virtue, Christian character, fruit. In other words, spirit-produced virtues. Spirit-produced virtues that sanctify our lives and conform us to the image of Christ, that set our lives apart from the world. And this is why Jesus says salt is good. The Spirit's work in our lives is good. It is, it is excellent. It is, it is fitting. It is necessary. It is wholesome work. It is what we must go through as believers. We must have that in ourselves. And I believe this is why he tells them, have it in yourselves. In other words, let it have its full work in yourselves. Let the, the work that is to be done in you, let it be done in, in its fullest capacity, in its fullest way. But I think where it gets a little interesting is because Jesus here, then he throws in a little caveat. He throws in a little caveat with this, um, with this metaphor. He says, but if the salt becomes unsalty. With what will you make it salty again? So, difficulty there. The question is, what does Jesus mean when he says becomes unsalty? And the difficulty, it seems, as I've read, as I've read through commentators, it, it seems to be the fact that um, pure salt in and of itself is not liable to losing its quality or properties of saltiness. So people say, well, well then what, what, what exactly is Jesus getting at here? Because, because salt can actually, it can't actually lose its, its property as uh, being salty. And, and so, and so what, what is Jesus referring to? Well, the difficulty that I find with this approach to Jesus' words is, is, is really the, the mood um, 
of the verb which Jesus uses here. The mood of this verb that Jesus uses here is a mood that is used when one is intending to present a hypothetical scenario. Technically, when we speak in hypotheticals, reality is somewhat irrelevant. Right? When we speak in hypotheticals, we're sort, of, we're sort of setting reality aside and saying, um, let's, let's imagine that this happened or this took place. So in a sense, when we speak in hypotheticals, that's, that's, that's what we're doing. Furthermore, it is said that there are impure salts in Palestine that can lose their savor through the process of, of physical disintegration. Now, with, in this context here, now as to what salt and what process Jesus is referring to, we don't really know. But what we do know, based on the verb or the mood of this verb, Jesus is presenting a hypothetical scenario, which does not necessarily depend fully on reality. In other words... Jesus is using this hypothetical scenario to speak to the imagination of the disciples. I mean, isn't this what we do when we speak in hypotheticals? We, we sort of set reality aside for a moment and we, and we speak to the imagination of the hearer. We want them to imagine something not fully based on reality, but in the sense, hey, imagine if this were a reality in a sense. Imagine if this were a reality. This is, this is, the, this is how this, uh, the mood of this verb can be used. So, in essence, what Jesus is saying to the disciples is, imagine if salt became unsalty in and of itself. Imagine if salt became unsalty in and of itself. That sort of a hypothetical scenario, that sort of imagery sticks to the mind. It makes you think, what? What would that be like? What, what, how would that work? What would you call it? What, what would you do with it? What, what would be its purpose at that point? What if salt lost all of its properties that made it effective, that made it valuable, and that made it useful? That is the, the, the essence here. What if that occurred? Now, the implication then is in the minds of the disciples, and you think, well, well it, it'd be good for nothing, essentially. It, it, would, it would have no value. It, it would be worthless. In other words, it would be ineffective. You, 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 wouldn't, you wouldn't use it on your meat to preserve the meat. Why? Because it doesn't have the properties to do anything. It's, it's worthless. What good would it be? Whenever I think about this imagery that Jesus gives here, I always think of... Of, of, of sand. I think of sand that, um, it's, not, it's not just sand, but it's sand that disintegrates. What, 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 what good would that be? You have sand and once water gets on it, it disintegrates and it's gone. What good is it? Nothing. It's worthless. And in Jesus here, he, he adds to that and says, so, so think about it, gentlemen. What would it be like if salt lost all of its properties that, that made it effective, that made it valuable, that made it useful? What if all of that was gone and, and none of that was in it? How would you restore that? 
What would you do to salt salt? What would you do to, to, to add value to such a thing? How would you go about doing that? And I, and I believe this is the emphasis. This is what Jesus wants to bring to the forefront of the minds of the disciples. I think what Jesus is doing here is he is warning the disciples against an ineffective or insipid type of religion and Christianity. In other words, a Christianity that lacks the essential qualities. It is insipid. That word insipid, I fell in love with that word this, this week as I was studying this, but that word insipid literally means lacking the qualities and fruit that interest, stimulate, or challenge. Lacks it. I mean, anything that would um, cause interest, it's not there. Anything that would stimulate, it's not there. Anything that would ch- challenge, it's not there. It's gone. And if you think about it, this really fits the context well, because in their unchecked pride, in their conceit, in their selfish ambition, they were failing to grasp Jesus's mission, his purpose and his work. The disciples were arguing amongst themselves as to who was going to be the greatest as Jesus is talking about going to the cross and serving others. They had rejected a genuine follower of Christ who was doing the work of the Lord because they didn't want him encroaching on their territory. The warning is meant to give them a mid-course correction and call them to repentance. Should they continue down this road, they will be ineffective. Useless. Not useful to God. I mean, the problem is they were carrying on like unbelievers. They were carrying on like unbelievers. They they were behaving just like those who do not know God. I mean, in chapter 10, verse 42, as when we get there, what we'll find is that Jesus, he challenges them. He says, hey, look, you guys are arguing, but this is actually how it is amongst the Gentiles. They do that, but it is not to be so among you. In other words, your mindset is worldly. Your, your mindset is, is set on the flesh. It is, it, is, um, it is temporal. It's just like the world. And if you carry on like that, if you carry on like that, listen, your lives will in no way stimulate others to godliness. Your life will in no way um, be an interest to unbelievers. I mean, think about it. All they'll say is, yeah, you talk about Christianity, but I mean, you're just like us. I mean, you do the same thing. I mean, you're, you know, you're you're all about your own glory. You're, um, You're all about the boastful pride of life and you're pursuing that. You're conceited just like we are. There's nothing different with you and and, and me. We, We do the same thing. We talk the same way. We pursue the same things. We have the same ambitions. We share the same things. And and so what he's saying is, 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 listen, if you continue down this path, your Christianity will be insipid. It's not going to challenge anyone to glorify God in the day of visitation. 
No one is going to look at your life and say that these are not of the world. No, they're going to look at your life and say you are just like us. Insipid. I think this is why a believer's testimony sometimes is ineffective. We say, well, I wonder why I'm not getting through that person or or, 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 or why are they not seeing or hearing what I'm saying? Why, why does it seem that, that it's ineffective? I think we can sometimes trace it back to this. It's, it's because your testimony is insipid. It doesn't challenge anyone. You you face trials just like everyone else faces trials. You face the circumstances of life just like everybody else faces the circumstances of life. You think about morality the same way that everybody else thinks about morality. You, You engage everything about this life the same way that the world engages it, and therefore it is insipid. So Jesus says, think about it, gentlemen, if salt becomes unsalty, if it loses all of its properties that that allow it to be effective and valuable, what will you do to salt it again? How do you regain that? How do you fix that? So Jesus says to them, listen, You all, the path that you're going, the direction you're going is not a good one. You need to turn. He's making this mid-course correction. Turn. Because if you don't, here's where it's leading. Here's the danger. But now notice Jesus, he offers to them not only this compelling metaphor, but then he offers to them a compelling or these compelling directives. These compelling directives. And these directives are very timely, right? Very timely. So notice what he says in verse in, in verse uh, 50 uh, there. He says, have salt in yourselves. Have salt in yourselves. In other words, you know, you think about what, what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1 concerning the faith about adding to our faith. I believe that this would be the concept there is, is, is be adding to your faith. Have salt in yourselves. The work that is being done in you, submit to that, yield to that, and have salt in yourselves. Effective salt. Salty salt, salt that has all of its components, Christianity that challenges, Christianity that, um, that stimulates others to love and good deeds, Christianity that causes others who don't know God to, to, to be interested and to, and to think and maybe even lead them to glorify God in the day of visitation. Have salt in yourselves. Then, finally, be at peace with one another. Now, there, now this isn't the end of it, because James and John are going to go to the Lord, and they're going to try to squeak their way past the other disciples, and the other ones are going to find out about it, and they're going to be 
arguing and quarreling right back where they were prior to this discourse. But nevertheless, Jesus says, be at peace with one another. It's interesting. Jesus is calling here for peace. He's calling here for unity. As a matter of fact, Jesus will say in John that the way the world is going to know that you're my disciples is your love for one another. But if the world peers into the church and they look into the church and all they see is a body of people who are fighting and bickering and arguing, who are filled with conceit, seeking their own glory, seeking their own way, seeking their own interests. They can say, oh, yeah, they're just like us. They're, they're no difference. No, Jesus said, you be at peace with one another because, listen, your peace amongst yourselves and by implication in the body is a testimony to the world. They are going to know that you love me because you have love with one another. As James says, where selfish ambition and bitter jealousy, where those things are, every evil thing exists. Jesus says, no, you, you all need to go a different direction. So, to us, have salt in yourselves. Have salt in yourselves. <coughs> and be reminded that we all will be salted with fire in this life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the truthfulness of it, the way that it impacts our lives so directly, so clearly, so powerfully, so needfully. We who know you, we desire to live pleasing unto you. We desire to have salt in ourselves, to live lives that challenge and stimulate and cause interest. Not that the world will Enjoy that, as you make it clear, the world will actually hate us because of that. And yet, Lord, even then, our testimony can be used by you through your spirit to cause one to glorify you in the day of visitation. So we long to live this way. We ask that you would help us to do so. We thank you for your goodness and for your faithfulness to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.